This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Abnormal uterine bleeding and menstrual suppression. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Women have been menstruating since the beginning of humanity, but ancient views on menstruation were positively barbaric. For example, famed Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder claimed menstrual blood could wither plants and turn dogs mad. Drinking a woman's menstrual blood was believed to guarantee her fidelity for life. Even as recently as 2009, a maid in Hong Kong was charged with adding her own menstrual blood to her employer's soup in order to improve their relationship. While many of these views have modernized, thankfully, menstruation is often still only discussed behind closed doors. Some cultures around the world even exclude menstruating women from certain activities while on their menses because they are considered dirty or impure. As a result, menstrual problems and abnormal bleeding is often underreported. The word menses is derived from the Latin word for month, mensis, and the Greek word for moon, mene. Women spend up to a week menstruating every month, equating to 450 periods over their lifetime. The average, that means the average woman spends six years menstruating. A 2017 survey of over 30,000 women reported 13.8% had to miss work or school due to menses-related issues. So when we as medical professionals create a space for women to discuss their menstrual concerns, we must be armed with the knowledge and ability to address those concerns. Today, I've invited an expert in reproductive health from Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Nationwide Children's Hospital to teach us about abnormal uterine bleeding and menstrual suppression. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Dr. Francis Fay. Francis, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for having me here, Jingjing. Before we get started, don't forget you can get CME credit or ABIM MOC points for listening to the program. If you're joining us by podcast, you can find that information on our website at ccme.osu.edu. If you have any questions about the program or suggestions for future topics, go ahead and send those to us by clicking the icon at the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast. All right, Francis, let's get started. Well, I'm so happy to be here today to talk to you about a, a topic that we see very commonly in obstetrics and gynecology, but also clinicians see very commonly regardless of what specialty they're in. So this is going to be an abnormal uterine bleeding and we'll also talk about the treatment options or menstrual suppression. As far as objectives go um, with this talk, hopefully participants will learn um, how to categorize normal and abnormal menstrual bleeding, 
Describe common causes of abnormal uterine bleeding, or AUB. Be familiar with the initial workup of AUB, and discuss common treatment options for AUB. Before we can go into talking about abnormal menstrual cycles or abnormal uterine bleeding, we have to talk about what is a normal menstrual cycle. The median age of menarche is around 12 and a half years. Usually, menarche, or the onset of menses, starts about two and a half years after the onset of breast development, or telarche. An adolescent menstrual cycle as if um, a normal length is a little bit longer than adult menstrual cycle. So for adolescents, we say 21 to 45 days is normal, um, and that's counting from the first day of someone's period to the first day of their next period. Um, an adult menstrual cycle, normal is defined as between 21 and 35 days. A typical period should last about two to seven days with a estimated blood loss around 30 to 40 milliliters per cycle. Obviously, that's not how uh, typical people define how heavy their periods are, but that should be around six or so tampons or pads a day, about 25 to 30 um, per period. Self-reported estimation we know is very inaccurate. Um, so some people will say they have very heavy periods or very light periods. That doesn't necessarily always correlate with the amount of blood that they actually lose or how what's reflected in their blood counts. Sometimes pictorial blood assessment charts, such as these little boxes on the sides, can be helpful where you show them these pictures that are supposed to represent either tampons or pads, and they can describe how many um, saturated pads they go through in a day or in a week. And that sometimes gives a little bit better estimate for clinicians to gauge how heavy their periods are. As far as how the menstrual cycle works, it's governed by hormones um, that are secreted by the brain, the ovaries, and then um, the uterus responds to these. So there is the proliferative phase or the follicular, follicular phase where estrogen levels start to rise that causes the uterine lining or the endometrium to thicken and also the uterus increases production of progesterone receptors. During this time, the ovaries are also starting to make follicles. They make lots of little follicles. These are what store the oocytes. Um, one of them eventually becomes a dominant follicle. There is a surge in the luteinizing hormone, the LH, and the FSH also rises too, um, and that triggers ovulation. After this, the, um, the dominant follicle that has the oocyte will release the egg, and then the dominant follicle will become the corpus luteum and begin to involute. This brings us to the secretary phase where the corpus luteum produces progesterone that stimulates the uterus to kind of stabilize the endometrium lining, get it ready for implantation. If um, a person does not become pregnant during that time, the corpus luteum will involute. That'll bring a decrease in the estrogen and progesterone levels, lead to constriction of the arterioles in the endometrium, and then eventually lead to menstruation, and the cycle starts over again. So before we can talk about um, abnormal uterine bleeding, we have to talk about how to diagnose abnormal uterine bleeding. What, uh, there's a very wide differential in people who complain of of bleeding, um, bleeding from the vulva, from the vagina, they can all sometimes be confused as uterine bleeding. So we don't, we won't go through all of these um, different points, but there's just a wide differential of what can be going on. The first question we have to figure out is where is the bleeding coming from? So as I um, briefly mentioned, people who complain of bleeding in their underwear or or on pads, or bleeding with wiping, this bleeding can come from many different areas. They can come from the vulva, from the vagina, from the urethra, the urine, um, the cervix, the, the anus, um, or it can also come from the uterus. So once we figure out where the bleeding is coming from, then, uh, and we decide it's coming from the uterus, we should also rule out pregnancy, because that brings us to a, a different set of questions that have different um, treatment options. So once we rule out someone's pregnant, then we can talk about actually abnormal uterine bleeding. So the um, International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics came up with this, this mnemonic to describe different causes of abnormal uterine bleeding, bleeding that's coming from the uterus. It's um, known as palm coin. So palm is describes the structural causes, such as polyps, adenomyosis, leiomyoma, also known as fibroids, or malignancy can all cause irregular periods. And then on the flip side, there's also the, the coin causes, the non-structural causes, um, such as coagulopathies, ovulatory dysfunctions, um, 
endometrial causes, iatrogenic, or all other causes um, that can be considered not yet classified. The most common thing that we'll probably see um, as the cause of abnormal uterine bleeding is AUBO, ovulatory dysfunction. Um, these are usually related to endocrine issues or hormonal changes that, um, that cause the period to be a little bit irregular. In younger patients, this is often due to immaturity of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access or the HPO access because it, it depends, as we talked before, um, regular cycles depend on various hormones secreted from different parts of the body. And in younger people, this may not be quite mature enough yet. Polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS is another very common cause of irregular periods. Thyroid problems, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, primary ovarian sufficiency, um, hyperprolactinemia, other endocrinopathies can also lead to ovulatory dysfunction. So whenever someone comes in complaining of abnormal uterine bleeding, we've ruled out um, pregnancy, we've made sure the bleeding comes from the uterus. These are some questions that are helpful to gauge um, what, what might be highest on our differential. So asking them when they started having periods, when they started having menarche, um, how often they're having bleeding, how long they're having periods, how heavy their bleeding is, what kind of symptoms they have associated um, with the week or couple days before each period, how painful their periods are, when their last period was, are they sexually active, um, current medications. And then um, as far as the endocrinopathies go, some other questions that can help rule in or rule out certain diagnoses. Um, so we always ask them about recent stressors, hospitalizations, um, weight changes, changes in their eating habits, any headaches, vision changes, um, significant acne, facial hair, and then family history of certain um, congenital issues, abnormal bleeding, um, bleeding disorders can also be helpful. As far as physical exam goes, height and weight um, is also very useful. And then again, ruling out those endocrinopathies, looking for acne, facial hair, other signs of virilization, acanthosis, nigricans, um, palpating their thyroid, and looking for other signs of potentially a bleeding disorder, petechiae or bruises. Um, a pelvic exam may or may not be helpful. It depends on the patient's age, when their last pelvic exam was, and um, kind of the pattern of their bleeding. But sometimes it can be helpful in just assessing the size of their uterus or even just making sure that the bleeding is uterine in origin. In terms of lab testing, um, obviously if someone is complaining of heavy periods, we wanna make sure that they're not becoming anemic or iron deficient. So a CBC, iron studies, if we're worried about a bleeding disorder, coagulation studies, von Willebrand's panel can also be helpful, platelet function testing. Again, we want to rule out pregnancy. Um, sexually transmitted infections can also cause bleeding. And then depending on our concern for different um, endocrinopathies, sometimes thyroid function tests, prolactin, FSH, LH, estradiol, testosterone, 17-OHP, and DHEAS can also be helpful to um, distinguish between the different causes of um, ovulatory dysfunction. So just to start off with a couple of cases, um, this is a 14-year-old who comes into your office complaining of irregular periods. She says her periods sometimes happen every other week, so every two weeks, um, or sometimes they're up to four months apart. Periods last about five to seven days. They're not super heavy. She uses four to five pads per day on the heaviest days. She started periods about a year ago at age 13. She has a normal BMI. She's a healthy, active teenager. She doesn't have any signs of um, female athlete triad or an eating disorder and doesn't complain of any other associated symptoms. So no acne, hirsutism, paralyzation, anything like that. So when someone um, comes in and they just started having periods, we tell them that it's, it's often very common to have your periods become ab be abnormal for the first year or two. Um, because like we talked about before, immaturity of the HPO axis is usually the, the reason for that. So I always tell my teenagers, um, Sometimes it just takes a little bit of time for your body to figure out what it's doing. So in order to have periods, the pituitary has to release LH, FSH, 
the ovaries have to respond to that, release estrogen and progesterone, and the uterus has to then respond to the estrogen and progesterone to build up a uterine lining and let that go. So that doesn't always happen on a monthly cycle when people first start, just because the, the body is still trying to figure this out. So this is very common in adolescents, especially within the first two years of menarche. Um, so 75% of menstrual cycles will eventually become within that longer time frame, a 21 to 45 day cycle after the first year. And then 95% of menstrual cycles will be within adult ranges of so 21 to 35 days by five years after periods. But within the first couple years, um, I just tell them it can take some time for your body to figure it out. So for our next case, this is a 30 year old who comes in with irregular periods. She says she has periods every one to three months. They're unpredictable. It's um, last about five to seven days, four to five tampons per day, start periods around age 12. She has a BMI of 35. She also has a little bit of facial hair on her upper lip that she plucks every other day. She has a little bit of um, darkening of the skin at the neck by the neck. And she says that she's never really used birth control. They've, she's been with her partner for five years. They haven't really tried having a child, but haven't tried to prevent having a child. And she's never, um, never become pregnant. So someone like this who um, is a little bit overweight, has some signs of metabolic syndrome, um, potentially some elevated androgens, this is someone who might be worried about polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. Usually PCOS, we use the Rotterdam criteria to, to diagnose, but there are some other um, societies that have very similar criteria. So usually people have either two, have two, or two out of three of these criteria. So they have oligo or anovulation, so um, periods are, are spaced out, or they have secondary amenorrhea where they stop having periods. They have evidence of hyperandrogenism, hyperandrogenism. So that can just be based off looking at a patient. They have severe acne, acne on their chest, on their back, significant hirsutism, lots of facial hair on their chin, upper lip, sideburns that they're constantly shaving or plucking, or they have serum levels of elevated testosterone. Um, Sometimes ultrasound can also be useful. We usually don't use it in adolescents because they already have lots of small follicles at baseline. Um, but, it, but we can see polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Oftentimes, um, cysts are a normal finding in ovaries because as we talked about, they come and go with every menstrual cycle. But in PCOS, there's not really a dominant follicle that forms. So they have lots of really small follicles. So we'll see up to we'll see 12 or more follicles in a single ovary, and that can be diagnostic of PCOS. Just seeing a couple of small follicles um, can be a normal finding. This should also last for at least one to two years. So we don't usually diagnose it in our younger patients who just started having menarche, because um, it has to be going on for a, a while now. And we should also, of course, exclude other causes. So congenital adrenal hyperplasia can sometimes look very similar to this. And then for our last case, we have a 20-year-old who comes in with heavy prolonged bleeding. She has periods every three weeks, so her cycle length is 21 days. Her periods last longer than the expected weeks. So they last up to 12 days, and she says for most of her periods, most of the days, she's changing tampons every two hours, frequently getting blood on her clothes. She has very large clots. Um, started having periods at 12. She also has frequent nosebleeds and also had heavy bleeding after a minor surgery, after a tonsillectomy. This is someone where you might be worried that they have a bleeding disorder. In the general population, probably about one to 2% of people have a bleeding disorder. In adolescents who report heavy menstrual bleeding, it's actually much more common. Probably about 20% of these people um, eventually be di are diagnosed with a bleeding disorder. And for adolescents who are hospitalized for heavy menstrual bleeding, this is even more frequent, a third of these patients will be diagnosed with a bleeding disorder. Other signs that might make you worried about a bleeding disorder, um, petechiae, bruises, ecchymoses, frequent nosebleeds, bleeding with oral care, um, those all make, make you, might make you a little bit more worried that a patient has a bleeding disorder. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, has this very short screening tool that can be used to kind of guide your, um, your uh, your diagnosis, so um, make you might, might make you more worried for someone who has a bleeding disorder. So if someone is frequently having prolonged periods, they're soaking through tampons or t pads in less than two hours with most of their periods, 
someone has a history of anemia where they're requiring blood transfusion or iron transfusion, iron infusions, that might make you more worried. People who have a family history of a diagnosed bleeding disorder, or they have evidence of excessive bleeding with other procedures, such as other surgeries, tooth extractions, pregnancy. If anyone fall, has one of these four um, criteria, that might prompt workup for a bleeding disorder. And usually I start with a CBC, iron studies, coagulation studies, um, and a von Willebrand's panel. And then um, another question that sometimes comes up is, is imaging helpful for the evaluation of abnormal uterine bleeding or heavy menstrual bleeding? And the answer is, in general, um, no, unless we're worried that there's a structural cause. So imaging is not gonna tell you anything about um, any of the endocrinopathies that we talked about. But if we're worried that they might have fibroids, adenomyosis, polyps, then imaging might be helpful. And usually a, a pelvic ultrasound is the first line um, option, especially if someone on exam has an enlarged uterus or they're complaining of bulk symptoms, they're having a lot of heaviness, they're feeling a mass in their belly. That might be someone where um, I would get imaging. If they have heavy, prolonged menstrual bleeding, um, that might make you more worried about fibroids or adenomyosis. If they have intramenstrual bleeding, they're bleeding in between their periods, um, that might be someone who you might be concerned they have a polyp. For people who have postmenopausal bleeding, um, we often want to evaluate the lining, the thickness of their endometrium, which might make you more or less concerned that they have hyperplasia or malignancy. And then, of course, anyone who has persistent symptoms despite um, various treatment options. Imaging might be helpful just to rule out something that we're missing. If someone has elevated, significantly elevated androgen levels, significantly elevated androgen levels, um, you might want to do imaging to look for a testosterone secreting tumor, or if they have a high DHEAS, a CT abdomen pelvis can look at their adrenals. And then um, most people probably have heard of an endometrial biopsy. Sometimes this can also be helpful in the evaluation of abnormal uterine bleeding. An endometrial biopsy is where we put a little pipel into the top of the uterus and um, it, has a, it creates a vacuum and basically takes a small sample of the lining of the uterus. And this is to rule out um, hyperplasia or malignancy, which, um, would require other treatment options. So for anyone older than 45 who has abnormal uterine bleeding, an endometrial biopsy is warranted. Anyone who has postmenopausal bleeding, especially if they have a thickened endometrial stripe, we want to really want to make sure that these patients don't have precancer or cancer. Any persistent abnormal uterine bleeding um, or bleeding that's not improved with medical treatment options. People who have a history of unopposed estrogen are at higher risk for endometrial cancer or hyperplasia. So these people, you might get an endometrial biopsy even at younger ages. Um, these are often patients who are overweight, who have PCOS, who have long periods of time where they've been amenorrheic. Anyone who has a higher risk for endometrial cancer. Um, so people with certain um, genetic mutations or other evidence um, other concerning features for endometrial cancer. Anyone has atypical glandular cells on a pap, that might be coming from the endometrium, and endometrial biopsy is warranted. An endometrial biopsy sample is probably about 4% of the endometrial lining. So um, it's not perfect, but is an in-office procedure that can be helpful. If the abnormal bleeding remains persistent or there is significant concern that we miss something on the biopsy, a hysteroscopy, dilation, carotage may be indicated. That's a um, procedure that we do in the operating room where we put the patient to sleep, put a small camera inside the uterus, look at the uterine lining, and then um, do a curatage where we scrape out the, the uterine lining so we can sample the full lining to make sure that we're not missing something. So we talked about how to diagnose um, abnormal uterine bleeding um, and the initial workup. So now we'll go into different options for treatment. So most of the options that we'll talk about are hormonal options, but there are a couple of non-hormonal options as well. Um, and some people get very um, wary when we mention different hormonal options because there's a lot of stigma around hormones. But I always tell people, your, as we talked about, your menstrual cycles are governed by your hormones. Your hormones go up and down, up and down every month, and that's what causes you to have a period. So it makes sense that we would treat 
a hormonal problem with, with other types of hormones. And we'll go through all of these hormonal options um, one by one, but most of them are also types of birth control, especially for our younger patients that can sometimes um, really put parents up in arms. So I always tell patients, um, again, this is a, a treatment option that we do very commonly for abnormal uterine bleeding. It makes sense because we're treating hormone, hormonal issues with hormones, and we use them very commonly in patients who don't need birth control but just have issues with their periods. And as far as the non-hormonal options go, um, sometimes antifibrinolytics can also help decrease menstrual bleeding just as they decrease other types of bleeding. There are also other benefits to hormonal treatment. Um, so people who have heavy menstrual bleeding or even um, not heavy menstrual bleeding will have really painful periods or dysmenorrhea. And hormonal treatment can also help, help with that. It can help with cycle regulation or menstrual suppression if people want to have more predictable periods or want to not really have periods at all. Those are both very safe options. They are also protective against uterine and ovarian cancer. So hormones maintain a thin lining of the uterus. So it's, we know it's not building up and becoming abnormal. Um, hyperplasia is not occurring. So it can be protective against uterine cancer in that way. It also suppresses ovulation in most cases, which is protective against ovarian cancer. Obviously, we talked about most of these options are types of birth control, so it also helps in preventing pregnancy for people who are not yet ready to carry a pregnancy. Um, most hormones also decrease circulating testosterone levels, so they can also help with acne or hirsutism, especially in patients who have PCOS. Um, endometriosis is a very common finding that we see in our patient population um, and hormonal treatment is usually the first line treatment for endometriosis. So anything that's suppressing the uterine lining from building up will also suppress those endometriosis implants from flaring every month. And so it can really help with the um, cyclic pain or the chronic pain associated with endometriosis. And for people who have premenstrual symptoms, hormonal treatment can also be helpful so that they're not seeing the cyclic changes of the hormones every month that's triggering their symptoms. They just have a steady state level of, of hormones in their body. Um, lots of people are afraid of using different hormones, different types of birth control, and we see this um, brought up very commonly, complaints about weight, or concerns about weight gain, infertility, mood changes, worsening acne. Um, Mostly its options are not associated with changes in their weight. The only option that often causes weight gain is the Depo-Provera shot, which we'll talk about. All the other options I tell people, it really depends on the person. Um, some people report that they gained weight. Some people report that they lost weight. On average, there's no change in weight. Most people don't have a change in weight. These options also are temporary, um, so they don't affect long-term fertility. And they usually don't cause mood changes, but again, everybody is different. And sometimes it uh, takes a little bit of trial and error to find the right one for a certain patient. And again, most of the time these help with acne and shouldn't make it worse, but everybody is different. So sometimes we have to change from one option to another. So just to go through all the different options, um, we'll start from the top of the list. We'll talk about combined hormonal contraceptives first. Um, these are also known as oral contraceptive pills, OCPs. It's a pill that people take one pill a day, every single day, around the same time every day. They're usually packaged a, as a month supply at a time, come in little cards, little foil cards. Um, they're labeled at the top with the days of the week. And so people know where they are in every, in every pack. It's obviously hard to take a pill every single day for people who are not used to taking medicine. So on average, people will miss probably about three pills per cycle, which may or may not trigger some breakthrough bleeding. There's a couple different types of birth control pills. There's monophasic pills where every pill in the pack is the same, except for the placebo week at the end. There's biphasic and triphasic pills where there's certain changes in the hormonal levels. Um, throughout the pack, which is supposed to mimic how um, our hormone levels change in the body at baseline. 
there's two components to these pills. There's uh, an estrogen and a progesterone. So most of the time the estrogen is ethanol estradiol. That's usually um, ranging from 10 to 35 micrograms per pill. These are all considered low dose pills. So the pills that um, historically have been used have been up to 50 micrograms, which we don't use really very much at all anymore. Um, so all the pills that are commonly used now are low dose pills. And there's a different type of progesterone in almost every pill. There is a newer birth control pill that just came on the market, I think within the past year, that has a new type of estrogen called estetrol. Um, the pill is called Nextelis, which is marketed to um, target different estrogen receptors. So we'll see how that works over time. I personally have not used it. Sometimes there is some difficulty in getting insurance approval for these newer medications, but I'm sure it'll become more readily available over time. And there's a couple of different ways to take these pills depending on someone's goals. So if someone just wants to have regular monthly cycles, they can take it cyclically where they take it as packaged. They take the three rows of um, active pills and the last row of sugar pills of placebos, and they'll have regular monthly cycles. You can also take them so that people skip their periods. They don't have to have a period at all with these. Um, it's completely safe to not have a period. So they can take an extended cycle where they space out their periods every three months, every four months, or they can take the pills continuously where they just take an active pill every single day, don't take any placebo pills. I often tell people it's hard to never have a period. So even if you are taking the pills continuously or extended cycle, you might have some breakthrough bleeding every once in a while. So they can either choose to take a break every three months, every four months, so they know when the period is going to happen, or they can just take their pills until breakthrough bleeding happens. And sometimes that happens at six months, at years. Some people can go many, many years without having a period. And um, again, that's safe to do because the, the uterine lining is kept thin by these pills. We know what's happening inside the uterus. Um, but if they do have some breakthrough bleeding, usually I tell them to take four days off from your pills, let yourself have a period, and then go back to taking them continuously. And that stabilizes the, say, stabilizes the lining a little bit um, so they stop bleeding and don't have a prolonged episode of bleeding. So as, we, um, as I briefly mentioned, there's different types of progesterones that can be in different pills. And it's often hard to memorize exactly what pill has what method. So usually I just choose a couple that I use very commonly and then the rest I will sometimes look up. Um, there's not really a lot of good evidence on which generation or which type of progesterone is the best. So usually I just start with one that I'm comfortable with using. I know a lot of patients do well on, and then depending on what kind of side effects they have, I can change the dose of the ethanol estradiol or change them to a different type of progesterone. So the first generation progestins, this is the norethindrone and the medroxyprogesterone. Um, these are the low estrogen pills that um, people use very commonly. It comes in different ranges of estrogen and usually very well tolerated in patients. There's also a second generation of pills that have levonorgestrel or norgestrel that um, reportedly have, may have a little bit less bleeding. These come in um, an extended cycle pack known as seasonal where they have three months at a time and just have a placebo week at the very end of that, um, that three month pill pack. They might have a little bit more androgen-related side effects with these, a little bit more acne, facial hair growth, but again, everybody is different. It's also the third-generation pills, the norgestimate, desogestrel, etanogestrel, that um, one, that's very, one that's used very commonly is, is Sprintec, um, that I think um, people are, that's very well known, um, but really they, they don't necessarily work better or worse than any of the other options. And the fourth generation pill has drosperinone, which does have um, increased anti-androgen effects. So these have been marketed to help with acne, hirsutism, um, PMDD, and this is known as Yaz and Yasmin as the brand names. They might have a higher VT risk and might have a slightly higher risk of DVT and PE, but um, overall very minimal and very safe for people to use. So there's also the transdermal patch, which is very similar to the pill. Just a, I just tell people it's just a different way of taking the medicine. So instead of a pill every single day, it's a sticker that you put on, um, leave it on for a week and change it once a week. 
Sometimes that's easier to remember for people to do something once a week. Sometimes that's harder for people to remember. There is one pill, one patch that has been on the market for a long time. It used to be called OrthoEvra. I think that company's not making it anymore, but um, now there's two generics called Zafemi and Zulane, which are the same, um, the same regimen. It does release 35 micrograms of estrogen per day, um, but because of the way that it's being given, people do have a slightly higher estrogen exposure. It, um, it can be placed anywhere on the body except for the breasts. The breasts are very sensitive to hormones, such as estrogen, so it may cause one breast to grow a little bit more than the other if placed in the breast. But otherwise, they can put it anywhere on their body. They can hide it under their clothes. Just have to make sure it sticks on really well. There is also a newer patch on the market, and um, it's called Twirla, which, again, I actually haven't used, but um, has been on the market for a couple years now, so is another option for people who have side effects with the Zafemi or the Zulane patches. May not be as effective for contraception for people who are higher weight, um, more than 198 pounds, but really depends on the person how well it works for um, controlling periods. Again, these can be take it, taken cyclically, where they have a period every month, extended cycle, where they choose to have a period every couple of months, or continuously, where they just use the patches until they have breakthrough bleeding and then stop for a couple of days, have a period, go back to using them continuously. Again, similar to the patches and the pills, there is something called the, the vaginal ring. It's a little silicone ring that goes inside the vagina that people change once a month. The one that has been on the market for the longest time is known as the Nuva Ring, which has ethanol estradiol and etanogestrel, and it's comparable to um, the estrogen exposure of a 30 microgram pill. It's a very thin, um, stretchable, foldable ring that fits in comfortably into the vagina. People can leave it in with sex. Some people like to take it out with sex. Um, they just have to remember to replace it within six hours, which might be difficult sometimes. Um, there is also a newer ring that's on the market that you might have seen advertisements for. It's called Anovera, and it's marketed as a, a ring that lasts for the whole year. It still needs to be changed every month or so so that it doesn't cause any vaginal erosions and um, so that people can have periods if they want. Um, but it's just one prescription that lasts for the whole year, so you don't have to worry about picking up refills, um, going to the doctor for more prescriptions. It is a little bit thicker than the Nuva ring because it does have more medication in it, um, but otherwise should fit in the vagina the same way. Again, these, these rings can be used just like the pills and the patches where they have a period every month, period every couple months, or continuously to not have to have a period at all. So we get a lot of questions about when these medications should be started, and there's different um, guidelines that different clinicians will tell people. Overall, it doesn't matter when they start. Um, sometimes we have them start during their period, um, either on the first day of their period or the Sunday following their first period if they want to start on a Sunday. Um, and that sometimes decreases the breakthrough bleeding that might happen initially. But if they need this medication to prevent pregnancy, I usually have them started immediately because we don't want to run the risk of waiting for their next period, they get pregnant in the interim. It does take a week for it to take effect to as contraception, so um, they should use some sort of backup form of birth control in that meantime. But it doesn't matter what day of the week they started on. It doesn't have to be a Sunday. The pill packs are labeled with Sunday as the first day of the week, but they usually come with a sticker that you can um, change the labeling at the top so that patients don't get confused where they are in the pill pack. But oftentimes, anytime you're starting a new type of medication, a new type of hormonal medication, people might have some breakthrough bleeding. So starting during their period might decrease that, that risk. For people who haven't had a period for a long time, they might have a thickened endometrium and they might be more likely to have a little bit of breakthrough bleeding when they first start. So it can be helpful to um, have, them have, a, have them have a period before they start one of these medications. So they, reduces that risk of breakthrough bleeding. So we can give them hydroxyprogesterone, also known as Provera. They take it one pill a day for 10 days, that induces a period, and then they can start these medications. So moving on to the other group of options, the progesterone-only options. These also come in a pill form. There are a couple different types of pills. There are certain pills that have been FDA approved for birth control, and there are pills that 
probably work, because they work the same way, but have never been tested for birth control. So in terms of the contraceptive options, there's norethindrone, 0.35 milligrams, also known as Micronor or the mini pill, which um, has been around for a long time and often can be helpful for suppressing periods. Because it is a very low dose, some people, a lot of people will have some breakthrough bleeding or continue to have heavy periods with them. There is a newer pill on the market known as Slind. It's, it is drosperinone, four milligrams, which is a little bit less finicky in terms of um, timing at, than the Micronor and may have a little bit less breakthrough bleeding. The Micronor really needs to be taken at this exact same time every day. Um, the Slind has a little bit more leeway if people are a little bit an hour or a couple of hours late in taking the pill. Um, I used to have a lot of problem getting Slind approved because again, it came on the market maybe like two or three years ago, but recently insurances have kind of picked up in offering that as an option. Um, so it has become more available to patients over time, thankfully. Um, it is drosperinone, which does have more anti-androgen effect, so can also be helpful for people who have acne, hirsutism, PCOS, that sort of thing. As far as the non-contraceptive pills go, these are all very similar to the contraceptive pills. Um, just again, never have been tested for pregnancy, so we can't say for sure that it works for pregnancy prevention. Theoretically, it should work, but I always tell people if you need um, contraception, you need to use something else or use something in addition to this. So there's a couple, there's three options that we use mainly, use most commonly um, either norethindrone or medroxyprogesterone. And these, the other benefit of these is that they have different ranges. So often we start, we can start at the lowest dose and then they can up titrate as needed to get them to a point where they're not bleeding or they have a more acceptable bleeding pattern. There, another um, option, as I um, briefly mentioned earlier, is the de depomedroxyprogesterone acetate injection, also known as Depo-Provera. The biggest side effect that we, um, that most people are worried about or complain about with the depo shot is weight gain. The package insert says about 13 pounds over four years. Um, a lot of studies have shown about, about like two pounds or so over a year. It's more common in obese patients, so more common in people who really don't want to gain weight, unfortunately. Um, and usually we see that weight gain over the first couple of months after that first dose, and then it often stabilizes over time. I also tell, tell people um, it might increase your appetite, which can increase your weight, so it's just something to watch out for. Um, Another side effect of the depo is that it also decreases bone mineral density. This is usually reversible, um, and we don't have a lot of good data on how much this increases a person's fracture risk while they're on depo, but we know that um, bone density does decrease, and a lot of most teenagers are growing or gaining most of their bone density during their first couple years after menarche. So that's just something extra to be, to be watchful for. Usually after about like the two or three year mark, I talk to patients and I say, we know this decreases your bone density. You might wanna come off of it for a year, a couple, um, a year or so, just to help that bone density come back. And then you can go back on the depot if you want. Um, we don't really have a lot of good information on how long someone needs to be off of depot, but we do know it can take a couple of years sometimes for them to come back, for the bone density to come back. In the meantime, while they are on depo, they should try to build up their bone density as much as possible. So they should be on calcium and vitamin D supplementation or make sure they get, get plenty of dairy products in their diet. Weight-bearing exercises are also very important. So we can kind of build up that bone density as much as possible um, while they're on the shot. I don't think depo is more likely to cause mood issues than any of the other hormonal options, but because it is a shot, it can't be easily stopped. It can't be um, sucked out or discontinued if someone does have side effects. So if someone were worried that they might have a lot of mood or behavioral issues with any sort of medication, they might want to try a, a similar pill first just to make sure that they do okay before we give them a shot and then they're um, stuck with it for at least three months. Depo lasts in people's systems, in most people's systems, for at least three months. So sometimes it can last even up to six or nine months, um, depending on the person. So Depo 
sometimes people might have a little bit of a delay in return to fertility and they might have side effects for a little bit longer because it just can't be easily stopped right away if someone does not like it. There's also the atonogestural subdermal implant, also known as the Nexplanon. This is about the size of a matchstick. It is um, FDA approved for birth control for three years, but we have a lot of good data that it probably lasts up to more like four or five years. So there's a lot of studies that um, are currently looking at leaving the implant in for longer, and we might see that FDA approval timeframe go up in the future. I always tell people fertility comes back within a couple days after um, taking it out. So if you want it removed, we can always remove it, but um, if you don't want to get pregnant, use some other form of birth control. The implant is, can be used for menstrual regulation, menstrual suppression. However, most people will not have regular monthly periods with it. The goal of the implant, just like with the progesterone pills, with depot shot, is to not have to have any bleeding at all but probably only about 20% of people have no bleeding. So that means the rest of the people can have random bleeding. Sometimes that means they have a spot every once in a while. Sometimes that means they have regular monthly periods, they could have random periods, or they could even have daily light bleeding, daily spotting. Usually the bleeding is not heavy and not painful and not dangerous, but can be annoying depending on how often people bleed. And that really just depends on the person. Some people are not annoyed by daily spotting. Some people are super annoyed by a spot every other month. So only that patient will know kind of what is, what is acceptable to them. But usually the bleeding pattern within the first couple months, first three to six months is representative of what's going to happen. So leaving it in for longer to wait to see if it gets better after that first three to six month mark doesn't usually change a whole lot. There are a couple of options that we can do to try to make the bleeding better if it does become annoying, which we'll talk about in a couple of slides. And then the last option is the intrauterine device. There's two, there are two types of intrauterine device. There's the levonorgestrel IUD, which has hormones. It has as a type of progesterone. And there's also the copper IUD that does not have hormones. Um, we're not going to talk much about the copper IUD because it really doesn't change people's menstrual cycles. It doesn't really help with bleeding. It's really just for birth control. It doesn't have any hormones, um, but it doesn't help with bleeding because it doesn't have hormones. As far as the levonorgestrel IUD, there's four IUDs that are on the market, at least in the United States. Um, there's the Morena, Kylina, Lyletta, and Skyla. They're all relatively similar, and we'll talk about them um, a little bit in a little bit more detail, but the hormones that they release really stay in the uterus. So for people who are worried about side effects from hormones, this can be good because it really doesn't affect the rest of the body. People shouldn't have a whole lot of mood changes, weight changes, appetite changes, headaches with this um, because the hormones are concentrated locally. But also because of this, it doesn't affect the body's own cyclic hormones, so um, they may continue to ovulate. And if people have issue pain with ovulation, have a lot of hemorrhagic cysts or other issues with ovulation or premenstrual symptoms, the IUD may not help with that. It goes inside the uterus, so um, it does require a pelvic exam to place because it goes in through the vagina into the, into the top of the uterus. This also this often can be very uncomfortable, very crampy, and it really depends on the person how uncomfortable they are. So I always offer them, we can do it in the office. Um, if you really don't want us to do in the office or um, can't tolerate an office placement, there is always the option to do it under anesthesia where we put you to sleep or put you under sedation so this can be done more comfortably. Um, but I would say most people do, uh, do well in the office. Even our teenagers who've never been sexually active, never had a pelvic exam before, um, they, can, they usually can tolerate an office procedure very well. Sometimes giving them ibuprofen um, an hour or so beforehand can also help with that cramping. Um, we have other things in our clinics like heating pads, aromatherapy, little buzzy devices to distract them. That can also help with the discomfort with insertion. So as far as the different types of IUD go, they, um, there's two main companies that make them, Bayer and AbbVie. They are all very, very similar in size. Um, so I don't usually use a patient's age or patient's uterine size as a marker of which 
which option to choose. I would say the ones we use most commonly are the Mirena and the Liletta. One, because they last the longest, and two, because they secrete the most hormones, so they're the most likely to help suppress periods. The goal of the IUD is to not have to have any periods at all. Some people do have a little bit of breakthrough bleeding, some random bleeding when they first start. Usually it gets better over time after the first couple of weeks or month or so. Um, the Morena IUD recently, just this year, I just, this, just a couple months ago, was increased up to eight years um, as far as for FDA approval for contraception. It's still approved for five years for treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding, um, but I always tell people we can leave it in longer if it's still working. We know that it works for birth control, so there's no reason that if we're using it for heavy bleeding, you have to have it removed if it's still working well. Um, expulsion rate is about the same for each for each of the IUDs, probably about three to five percent of the time that the, the uterus does push out the IUD. Um, and if this happens, I always tell people nothing gets hurt on the way out. The uterus just cramps and cramps and pushes it out. If that happens, you'll see it in your underwear or um, at the opening of the vagina, and we can always just put a new one in or do something else. The Mirena packaging says that the uterine size should um, measure to about 6 to 10 centimeters to use the Mirena. We use it sometimes in our postpartum people immediately postpartum where the uterus is much larger. So it's not a absolute contraindication if it's outside that size range, but that is what the packaging says. And Liletta um, just says it has to be larger than five and a half centimeters. For smaller uteri um, that are sounding to less than that, sometimes one of the smaller options might have a lower chance of being expulsed. But for people who are using it to help with bleeding, Usually the Mirena and the Liletta are the, the go-to options, depending on what's available in your clinic. But they are the exact same medication, or the exact same um, amount of medication, just made by different companies. Sometimes we get questions about using IUDs in oliparous patients. Um, there's no contraindication if they've never had a, a baby before, if they've never been pregnant before. And oftentimes, they, most of the time, they tolerate it very well. There might be a slightly higher risk of expulsion in younger women, um, but we know it doesn't affect their later fertility and doesn't increase their risk of getting sexually transmitted infections. I always um, recommend or offer screening for STIs at the time of IUD insertion, especially if they have not had it recently um, or they have met multiple sexual partners. But, screened, but, but IUD insertion does not need to be delayed unless we're worried that they have a current infection or they have um, significant inflammation around their cervix at the time of insertion. So we had um, mentioned briefly that breakthrough bleeding can occur more commonly with the arm implant, but also sometimes with the IUD. And it really just depends on the person. So I always tell people, we'll try this, give it a couple weeks, couple months, and we'll see what happens with your bleeding. If it is very bothersome, there are some options that we can do to make it better. One option is always just to take out the implant or the IUD and switch to a different option. If they're willing to leave it in for a little bit longer, we can try one of these other options that might be helpful. There's not one best option, unfortunately, um, so sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error. So what the IUD and the implant do is they uh, release progesterone, and progesterone maintains a thin uterine lining. Sometimes that lining is so thin that it becomes atrophic so it comes out and spurts. So in that case, combined hormonal contraceptives, birth control pills, birth control patches, the vaginal ring can be helpful because they do have estrogen, which helps to stabilize that uterine lining. So oftentimes I'll have them use these um, options continuously for about a month or two to see what happens with their bleeding. So instead of taking that placebo week off, they'll just use the same pill, same patch every day, every week um, to hopefully suppress that bleeding. If that works, they can stop it after a couple months, see what's happening with their bleeding. Sometimes the bleeding just stops and doesn't come back and they um, can just be happy with their implants or their IUD. Sometimes the bleeding gets better while they're on the pills or the patch, but then it comes back once they stop it. And in that case, they can just stay on the pills or the patch the whole time that the IUD or the implants are in. There's no harm in 
using two types of birth control at the same time. Tamoxifen is a medication that um, people use after treatment of breast cancer, which also has effects on the, on the uterus um, and can also help thicken, stabilize that lining in, in research studies has been shown to be helpful for some people um, in terms of helping with the bleeding. And they usually use that for about a week at a t week um, and just to see if that helps the bleeding. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen, um, naproxen, Motrin, Aleve, these can often be helpful to help with the inflammation that might be caused in the uterus. Um, they take these around the clock for about a week and that helps with bleeding. Similarly, doxycycline helps with, infl helps with inflammation. They take that twice a day for a week or two. Um, sometimes their bleeding gets better. Sometimes their bleeding gets better and then it comes back. And then we talk about starting a different option. Methapristone is um, hard to obtain in the United States, but in research studies have been used um, along with ethanol estradiol or doxycycline to help with breakthrough bleeding. If it becomes more available, that's sometimes an option. Um, again, as we talked about, the progesterone thins the uterine lining, so sometimes just giving them straight estradiol, either in a pill or a pa patch form, can be helpful to stabilize that lining. Tranexamic acid, an antifibrinolytic, um, is just helpful for heavy bleeding in general, so that can also help decrease people's bleeding. They take that twice a day, um, sorry, two pills, three times a day for five days at a time. Obviously, some of these medications can have different side effects, can interfere with different medications, different um, other medical problems. So the CDC has this great chart on their website and they also have an app that you can use to plug in different things that the patient has going on to see what options are available to them. Um, the biggest thing that we often worry about is with the combined hormonal contraceptives, they have estrogen that we know that increases people's risks of uh, venous thromboembolism. So for people who are at higher risk for that, um, such as migraines with aura, hypertension, um, diabetes, older women who are smokers, we obviously want to avoid those options in those people. So um, I'm often referring to these charts depending on what a patient has or what medications they're taking to make sure that what we're giving them is going to be safe. There are also surgical options that we can do sometimes to help with the bleeding. Um, we don't, we usually don't jump to these right away. Usually I always talk to people about medical options um, that can be less invasive, but for people where that's not helpful or we need to have, or we identify a structural issue, surgery can be helpful. For people who have acute heavy bleeding, sometimes a hysteroscopy DNC can be helpful just to scrape out that uterine lining, um, get, stop the bleeding currently, and then kind of see what happens in the future. For people where we've done an ultrasound or looked inside the uterus and we've identified a polyp and that's what's the cause of their bleeding, doing a polypectomy, removing that polyp can be helpful. Um, people who have large fibroids, we can remove those fibroids, that's called a myomectomy, where we leave the uterus and just remove those fibroids that are contributing to heavy bleeding. There's a wide range of what fibroids can do. So sometimes small fibroids don't really cause any issues in bleeding, but pe people can have large fibroids that make them feel like they're pregnant or look like they're pregnant. And oftentimes those really large fibroids can cause issues with bleeding. Um, a myomectomy is very similar to a hysterectomy in terms of time, morbidity, risk. So if they are done with childbearing, usually we will, we will recommend a hysterectomy instead of removing those fibroids. But if they would like to preserve their uterus for future pregnancy, a myomectomy to just remove the fibroids is an option. An endometrial ablation is a procedure where we um, burn the lining of the uterus, either with water or coagulation, so that endometrial lining isn't able to build up and slough off every month or every so often. Um, 
It is often not a permanent solution, but the goal is to not have any periods with it and can be more helpful for people who are close to the age of menopause um, so that it kind of tides them over for the last couple of years. Uterine artery embolization can also be helpful for people who have one large fibroid or a couple large fibroids where um, this is a procedure that interventional radiology does to cut off the blood supply to these fibroids so they don't continue to grow. They slowly involute over time and bleeding can often get a lot better. The endometrial ablation, uterine artery embolization, hysterectomy, um, obviously hysterectomy are not recommended for people who want to have future childbearing because that can really have impacts on their uterus and make future pregnancy difficult to achieve or um, dangerous. As far as, um, so all the options that we talked about already are options that we offer to people when they come to see you in the office. Sometimes they will also have really heavy periods um, where they have to come into the emergency department. Um, so we give them really high doses of hormonal medications, antifibrinolytics, or there's also some mechanical options that we can also give to people. So that is everything that I have um, today. Perfect, thank you so much, Francis. It's wonderful to hear all the great different options that we can offer our patients. So if they have uterine bleeding, they don't have to suffer. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.